Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. It is June 9th. 2022 and a little bit, little bit of a surprise here because honestly I hit the button for the old intro music which is a bit of a surprise <laughs> but not not necessarily a bad thing but despite one uh, false start here you are listening to Mr. Daly and Mr. Mark Hamilton welcome to one and all on the eve of round what are we up to round eight of the Formula One season it's gone quickly just like that in the blink of an eye the third of the season is over we got Baku this weekend but We'll get to that in a moment. Mr. Hamilton, how are you tonight, sir? Uh, it's been, what, two days since we saw each other? The two of yeah. us had a big adventure, a kind of a big post-COVID adventure. We went down to Vancouver or went to downtown Vancouver <laughs> together, had the opportunity. We were invited to tour the new Go Goat Sports Podcast Studios in downtown Vancouver, which was very cool. Finally had the opportunity Absolutely. to meet a friend of the show, Matt Sikaris, in person, as well as his co-host, Blake Price and, and a number of other folks that help support that enterprise. But, you know, I, I couldn't help but feeling a little, a little, a little minnow like once I got home and saw my little <laughs> basement studio after we had the opportunity to see a full, full on professional uh, operation. But that was pretty cool. And it was cool to get to spend a little bit of time, uh, a little bit of time with you too. Yeah, it was cool because I mean, uh, you know, we we could have honestly have gotten together a long time ago to to do this face to face. I mean, considering we live so close to each other, but we've taken to doing it uh, in the virtual studio so we can also live stream it because we don't have a ton of ton of cameras that we could do to to to, to do it justice. You know, one of these days we will perhaps have our own studio similar to a Sakaris and Price do. I'm rocking the, uh, the the nice hat that they gave us uh, or gave me. I think you got one too, and uh, yeah, it certainly gives something to aspire to because the setup that they have there is pretty sweet and it was uh, really cool uh, not only to see them but to get to see you in person as well and I just got back from uh, the school concert at my kids school that was cool I think the first time that I've been there in all over two years rather than being there to pick up somebody who isn't feeling well or has got to go to the doctors or something like that you know that that's the you know got to go to the office and sign them out so that was the first time I did that in two years so it's been a week of first also my big thing that I'm going to flex on, I did a, a preview for this weekend's Azerbaijan Grand, Grand Prix on Sky Sports UK, nonetheless, yesterday morning. And that was completely awesome. That was such an honor. I was really thrilled to do that. That's fantastic. And the funny thing is, it's not even the only live TV spot you're going to be recording in a rolling seven days period. Also, Global TV, which is a big TV network up here in Canada, similar to the networks in the States like CBS, NBC, yep. ABC, etc. They reached out. You're going to be doing a spot with them early next week, I believe, Tuesday, previewing Tuesday and talking morning, about the yep. growth of 
Formula One and the Canadian Grand Prix. So lots of well-deserved appearances. If anyone in the UK did have the opportunity to see that, by chance has it on their PVR, because of regional restrictions, we've not actually been able to see your appearance. <laughs> we've heard folks that I've seen it, but we would love to see it as well. But dude, congratulations. I, I, I'm assuming it was probably a little bit of nerve wracking, but it sounds like it went off without a glitch. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, I've done a lot of live radio hits over the years and not so much for Formula One, but back in the day when I was covering uh, Vancouver Whitecaps of uh, Major League Soccer, I used to do quite a bit of radio stuff. But this was uh, completely different and was kind of cool because, you know, I had all these different people coming through the headset and telling me he will be on in three minutes and 90 seconds and one minute and just checking audio levels. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm live with the host. I'm just like, wow, this is this is a uh, pretty surreal, but it was it was a lot of fun to do. And selfishly, it's also good exposure for you and it's good exposure for the show. And, you yep. know, we were we were sharing some stats on our, our Twitter feed a couple of days ago. And, you know, podcasting world's not particularly democratic. You know, if you look at YouTube, everyone's numbers and their data, they're made public. You can see who's doing well, which influencer is struggling, uh, which uh, influencer is doing really well, who the big vloggers are. Like all that data is out front and center. There's a great amount of transparency in the, the podcast world. It's very difficult to ascertain how certain podcasts do. You can you can draw it's the wild west. Yeah, it's totally the wild west. And at that, having said that, I'm not about to share our data necessarily. <laughs> but there were a couple of data points that I did want to share because you and I were doing a bit of a deep dive the other day, kind of like a, a quarterly business review to get a sense of hey, what's working for us, where is our growth coming from, and a couple of stats that I did want to share. And again. This is a, a byproduct of all of the support that everybody listening at home is giving to us. This isn't us. This is people tuning in week over week, sharing feedback with us, sharing insights, joining us for Spaces Chats, being part of the community. But you know, if you look at last year, so 2021, we saw year over year growth. And when we talk about growth, we talk about unique podcast downloads. We saw growth last year of just under 3 hundred percent more than tripling the numbers that we did the year before this year we're at plus 36 percent and we have almost as many downloads so far this year so halfway through the year as we did all of last year which is remarkable and then finally i think this would be interesting for a lot of our audience as well our top markets our top four markets for downloads are the u.s they represent more than half of our audience and it increases almost all the time. Canada represents about a quarter, 24%. The UK slots in there at 16% and the rest of the global community makes up 6%. And of that 6%, they descend in this order. The Netherlands, Australia, Sweden, Norway, Ireland, Mexico, France, Germany, Spain, Denmark, and the United Arab Emirates. Shout out Dubai. So again, the community's diversifying. It's becoming ever more global and our growth continues to... Uh, to accelerate, which is really, really exciting. So we are yeah. obviously just very excited that everyone listening at home sees value in tuning in every single week. Absolutely. And we, I can't be more grateful for the support that uh, that we've received from the community, the, the, the both of us, especially since we started doing this almost two years ago together, right. which is phenomenal. I mean, so it's uh, it's it's been a lot of fun and boy, has time flown by in the blink of an eye. But, you know, I had to laugh as you were kind of going over those top four markets there. And and you and I were kind of joking about it last night. And you said, we, well, we got a new tagline for the show that Scootery F1 is America's favorite F1 podcast hosted by two Canadians with British passports. <laughs> <laughs> so, I love it. I, you know, talk about diversity. There you go. Yep, There's yep. A, it's all happening here. But 
talking about the things uh, that that are happening before we get into it uh, let's just uh, go over a couple of things just to kind of like refresh the, uh, the the memories and and cleanse the palate here i'm just going to go over the <clears throat> excuse me the, uh, the the two championships here then i'll hand it off to you for an f1 fantasy update so first of all and this is just blowing my mind that after eight races well Coming up on eight races now, there's only 25 points. Separate the top three drivers of the championship. Max Verstappen, Red Bull, has 125 points, followed by Ferrari Charles Leclerc with 116. Sergio Perez rounds out the top three with 110. Then followed up by uh, George Russell from Mercedes with 84. Carlos Sainz with 83. And then Lewis Hamilton, sixth with a very distant 50 points. 75 points off the championship lead. After seven races, never thought I would say that. And then moving over to the constructor's side, a little bit, well, a little bit of daylight. 36 points separates Red Bull and Ferrari at the top of the constructors. Red Bull 235, Ferrari 199, followed by Mercedes, which 134. McLaren is fourth, pardon me, in the championship with 59. And then Alfa Romeo rounds out the top five with a very respectable 41 points. So, Mr. H, over to you for an F1 Fantasy League update. Yeah, let's take a quick peek. So, looking at the Scuderia F1 podcast, Cross featuring Vincenzo Landino, Fantasy Super League, the top 10 continues to pivot. It continues to change simply because we've had a couple of unpredictable finales the last couple of Grand Prix. Going through the top 10 in descending order, number one, Andrew T of the UK, 1,653 points. Number two, Thaddeus F, 1,624 points. Number three, Hannibal M of Hannibal Racing from the United States, 1,620 points. Number four, Christopher N, 1,590 points. Number five, Hailing from the UK, Cameron N, 1,582 points. Number six, Skidaria Keys, Roland K from the United States of America, 1,581 points. The highest ranking Canadian, number seven, Bradley P, slots in with 1,567 points. Number eight, Aziz H from the United Kingdom, 1,557 points. Number nine, Matthew B from the United States, representing Checkered for Checo. Oh, Checkered for Checo. My eyes aren't as good as they used to be. 1,555 points. And then finally, rounding out the top 10 from the United Kingdom, Jeffy O, 1,550 points. So despite the fact that UK listeners only make up 16% of our audience, they are dominating the fantasy pool. But it's nice to see a, a couple of US and a couple of Canadians, well, one Canadian in the top 10. Yeah, awesome. Good for you guys. Uh, loving uh, following along this year because sadly, I missed off the cutoff to field a team in my own fantasy F1 league. How so embarrassing daily, is that? Daily, as a professional courtesy, I've never brought that up and you've never revealed that truth to me. So I'm glad you are now. But to the 2,030 <laughs> people that made an effort and you couldn't, thank you to everyone else and exactly. shame on you. Well, you know, honestly, you know, out of those 2,030 people, I'd probably be coming in 2031. <laughs> so, you know, I'm kind of like a fire and forget kind of guy when it comes to like fantasy. I like line up my, my, my team week one and I'll check in about like 75% way through the season. So, yeah, it was just uh, I'm, I'm not a strong fantasy guy for, for any sport. But uh, hey, enough, oh, just a enough. couple of things uh, before we get onto the stat of the week. Just wanted to mention that our very humble YouTube channel is now only one sub away from 500. We're at a very 
robust 499 subscribers. And I'm just going to just mention this very briefly. I'm just going to put it here. Uh, as we mentioned, we really are very grateful and very appreciative for all the support that we get from each and every one of you. If you want to help us uh, continue to grow the show, best thing you can do is uh, obviously share with a friend or somebody, a you know, family member, somebody you know that loves Formula One. But you can also kindly leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever. Anyways, I'm just going to leave it there. Thank you again for all the support. And Mr. H, do you want to do the stat of the week? I feel like you should because you went through and crunched all these numbers. Well, I did not crunch these numbers at all. I was working and, you know, instinctively via muscle memory, sometimes your phone brings or your hand brings your phone into your face. I clicked on that Reddit button. I clicked on Formula One for a subreddit. And one of the great Reddit users compiled this stat. But the stat of the week this week, which once again was farmed out of Reddit, is this. The most races that a driver has ever competed in before winning a Grand Prix, number one, Sergio Perez, 190 races. Number two, Mark Weber, 130 races. Rubens Barrichello competed in 124 Grand Prix before winning a Grand Prix himself. Truly competed in 117. Jensen Button, of course, the 2009 world champion, competed in almost six seasons worth of Grand Prix before he took his maiden win. Nico Rosberg, the 2016 world champion, competed in 111 Grand Prix before stepping onto the top step of the podium for the first time. Oh my gosh. I, I am having that moment today. Fisichella. <laughs> oh, can you just say it for me? Giancarlo Fisichella. Thank you. Thank you. No sometimes, in <laughs> full disclosure, like sometimes I have these mental blocks. Like I, my, I've known my boss's wife's name since the day the two of them met. But for some reason in my head, her name is Francine, which isn't even remotely close to what her name actually is. And every time I talk to him, I'm so paranoid. That's what I'm going to say. But anyways, finally, the the, the the driver that rounds out this list is Mr. Hakkinen, who scored 96 Grand Prix before winning his first race. So some interesting stats there, but especially that Sergio Perez one that drivers very rarely last five or six or seven years in Formula One without at least one Grand Prix win, either because they win a race or because their time expires and they're out of the sport. But yeah. it's uh, it's astounding that Sergio Perez competed at 190 Grand Prix before taking that win with, Sir, I guess, would have been Racing Point a couple of years ago and stuff yep. here. Okay, correct. And you know what's uh, really astounding, really interesting about this list? That is there are three world champions in that list that you so correctly pointed out. Nico Rosberg, Jensen Button, and Mika Hakkinen. So, right, it, it gives hope to some of these guys, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, I, I'm sure somebody like uh, Sergio Perez is probably thinking about it, thinking that or Nicholas Latifi, or Nick Latifi, whoever it might be, thinking that you know, if you're a student of the sport and you know some of these stats, thinking, well, my time hasn't come yet, but look, two world champions had to uh, compete in more than a hundred Grand Prix before they got their maiden win. I think it's uh, pretty cool. And the, the second cool stat of the week that uh, you managed to dig out was the longest F1 careers. Number one uh, of that list is seven-time world champion, which is Michael Schumacher, 21 years, three months. Second is Fernando Alonso, 21 years, two months. Kimi Raikkonen, also a former world champion. Three, several world champions in this. Well, they're all world champions except for uh, Rubens Barrichello. Sorry, but uh, Kimi is third at 20 years, nine months. Rubens, 18 years, eight months. Jensen Button, seven years, two months. And Graham Hill, 16 years, eight months. 
So maybe if you're Nick Latifi thinking, if I can hang on for another 18 years, maybe I'll have a, I, I don't want to, I, I should, I should, I should joke about that uh, too much. Nicky's a stand-up guy, but again, it just goes to proof. If you can stick around long enough, you know, good things uh, will happen. But th- these guys are a little bit of the outliers because for every Michael Schumacher and Fernando Alonso, how many guys came in? I wouldn't say the one hit wonders, but the guys that come in and are gone after a year or two, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. Well, why don't we get into the meat of the show? And well, let's talk about this one first. And it's a, they're going to adjust the calendar for 2023 by placing uh, races in regions for this uh, the, this reshuffle. I really like this because it is, you know, number one, it makes sense. We've talked about it uh, before you and I just to sort of casually over the, the, the months and years that we've been doing the show together. But, you know, it's very appropriate in this day and age when everything costs are all through the roof. But also, I think they're a little bit more aware that uh, they want to be a little bit more credible when it comes to things like sustainability in regards to moving freight and also personnel travel. Because we've talked about it before, you know, they want to go up to 25 races per, uh, per, per year and you're ferrying people from the Middle East to Asia and then back to Europe and then every quarter in between. That's going to take a toll, not to mention that these freight costs have increased, what was it, 5 or 10% over the first couple of months of this year due to the, well, it sounds like sadly we're heading for stagflation, which is a word that I sadly didn't know existed until about 18 hours ago. Now it scares the hell out of me, but it's just um, another indication that we got through one storm a couple of years ago with COVID and now Formula One, as we all are, are facing another. Definitely. I do I do like the story, and I think you look at the 2022 calendar, it's a little bit erratic, and it's a little bit disjointed. And obviously, in 2020 and 2021, that was just a byproduct of the fact that they were doing everything possible to manufacture some sort of meaningful championships in light of the fact that we were struggling through a global pandemic. And I don't think anyone was going to criticize them for the fact that the calendars were a little bit disjointed. But now that hopefully knock on wood, we're shifting into that post-pandemic phase. As you see this calendar continue to expand year over year, of course, this year was supposed to be 23 races. It ended up at 22. We can, as you mentioned, probably expect 23, 24, 25 races in the near future. What you're going to need to do geographically is segment the calendar. So take a look at this year, for example, we start the rate or the start the season in the Middle East, Bahrain, first week, second week, we're in Jeddah. That's a two, that's a three hour flight. That makes total sense. But then you bounce from Jeddah all the way to Australia. From Australia, you go to Italy. From Italy, you go to Miami. From Miami, you go to Spain to Monaco, which is a short trip. Then you bounce back into the Middle East for Baku. And from Baku, you go to Montreal. And from Montreal, you go to Silverstone. There's significant work and significant opportunity here to optimize the calendar. And I think what Formula One's ultimately looking at doing is saying, look, within that championship, we effectively need to have an Asian regional championship. We need to have a Western Europe regional championship. We need to have a North American block. And then maybe we bookend the championship with a couple early races in the Middle East and we close off with a couple late races in the Middle East. But this year, for example, we're coming to North America how many times? We're coming once for Miami. We're coming once for Montreal. Then we're bouncing back late in the year because we're going to go to Austin. So three separate trips to North America. And does that need to be three? Is there an opportunity where you could 
bookend Miami and Montreal. I think ultimately for the reasons that you described, freight, environmental impacts, looking after the health and well-being of everyone involved in the championship, I think they need to start finding ways to string races together based on geography. There we go. I'll unmute myself before before I start talking. But yeah, no, I, I totally agree. You make some really great points there. I mean, in, in 2020, I think we were just grateful that we were actually going to go racing because at a time when there was virtually nothing else happening, somehow Formula One was able to cobble together a 17 race season. And, and even though there was, pardon me, a little bit of ju- jumping around, we did see some doubling up at some of the trips tracks through necessity at uh, in Austria at Silverstone which you know personally it worked but I thought after a couple of races I was more than happy to move on uh, from from both the Red Bull ring and uh, Silverstone even though they're two tracks I, I personally uh, like a lot but it, it worked in the context of the time and it was really, really important and then we saw other tracks that we'd never seen before like Portimao Mugello we saw Imola come back but then uh, yes sure last year or this year as well is a little bit of it in between but now that things are starting to get back normal to me it just like like you say it just makes sense the, you know group them together where possible save on costs and hopefully I'm going to that that if this happens and by all means it does it sounds like it is that there will be some more excitement generated around a block of North American races, a block of Asian races, Middle Eastern, South American, whatever it might, excuse me, whatever it might be. I, I can tell, I can tell you're very excited for the next story. So while you grab a sip of water, we'll wrap up that topic and we'll bounce into another, which created a ton of buzz on F1 Reddit, on F1 social media this week. But there was a quote in a story this week from Christian Horner who said, I would be, ha-, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he indicated during the story that he would ultimately be happy for either one of his two drivers to be world champion in 2022, regardless of whether it was for Stappen or regardless of whether it was Sergio Perez, he would be happy. And he says here, and I'm going to quote, it doesn't matter to us which of the two is world champion, he said. Of course, the constructors is enormously important, but whether it's Max or Checo, they're both Red Bull drivers and they've both got the same chance. Of course, it's a long, long season and it will have its ebbs and flows, but it's great to have both drivers right at the sharp end. Checo is in the form of his career. He's doing a great job and it's not a one off. I mean, we saw his pole position in Jeddah and he's really hitting a rich vein of form. So that's fantastic for us. But we need both drivers working the way they are together. Because Ferrari had the quickest car, certainly in qualifying, whether it was the races is unknown, but they are massive opponents and we've got to work collectively to make sure that we get both drivers ahead of them. So having heard that quote and having seen the way that Red Bull's operated really since basically Max Verstappen arrived on the scene in 2016, that this has been a Max-centric team. This is an army that is built to make sure that Max has the sharpest possible weapon when he goes out on the track every single Sunday. I think that in the event that Max wasn't going to be a champion because of uh, circumstances that are maybe beyond the control of the team or because of his own poor form, I think they would much rather have Sergio Perez won a championship than any other driver on the grid, but I don't think given the choice, this team would ever be satisfied with the two of them compromising each other's title chances so that Sergio could chase the championship right down to the final day. I think these are words for the media, but I think ultimately that given the choice, Red Bull wants Max Verstappen to be the champion in 2022. What do you think? 
Yeah, absolutely. I got a couple of thoughts on this, but first of all, I'm going to say box, box, box. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back <laughs> in just a moment, and I'll give my thoughts to your to your question. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. You're listening to Mark and Mark. We're talking about the, well, not the news. I guess it is really big news when you have a team principal like Christian Horner come out and say that, you know, he he's, he'll just be happy if one of his drivers win it. Like you say, I think this is just words for the media. I can't imagine a scenario where they would really, well, I mean, yeah, it, it's tough, right? Because you have this situation a couple of weeks ago in Spain, right? Where they had the, the the team orders and Checo kind of, he said something kind of like offhand. It wasn't really anything too incendiary, anything really too inflammatory about it. But the, the fact that he wasn't too happy about it. Then you go to Monaco this, uh, you know, two weeks ago, he wins that race. So now he's only 25 points behind his teammate. And I think this conversation changes a little bit. That being said, I think this weekend that if Max is winning or, well, I don't know even. It, it's it's hard to say until, until I see it proven and demonstrated to me on the track that this is, st- like, I still 100% believe that this is Max's team. I just don't know if they'll give, you know, Sergio the benefit, you know, the benefit of winning a race this early in the season while there's still points, plenty of points up for grabs. I think maybe that if they're running 1-2 or something like that, and maybe Charles is running fourth or fifth, depending what, what what the running order is, then sure, maybe they, they let Checo take this race. But I think it really depends like how serious this team orders conversation between the two Red Bull drivers uh, becomes. It depends where that gap between Max and Charles Leclerc is. If Max has some bad results and then Sergio overtakes him, and then just by virtue of uh, scoring more points and overtaking Max in the world championship, then I think the tone of the conversation maybe changes a little bit. What do you think? I Yeah, I don't disagree. I just, I think that Max really needs to be mathematically eliminated for this team to start investing their resources full hog 
unrestricted behind Sergio Perez. But I think the timing is actually good for a listener question. And I meant to ask you this the last time we recorded, and I think we ran out of time. But a great question here from one of my very favorite listeners, Mr. BJ Crabtree. He says, tough question here. Red Bull clearly has a goal of drivers and constructors titles. So early on in the race, referring to Monaco, why didn't they tell Perez to switch places? Simply because Perez would have freaked the F out. Well, he didn't say that. He said, Perez would have freaked the blank out. I asked that as a serious question. If this team is, if this is a team sport, kind of, then they can ask whatever they'd like to ask. No. If Ferrari doesn't have the mess up in the pits, then Max finishes fourth and gives away points to Leclerc. Too simple. Bad team chemistry. I come from a sport of football where you follow team coach orders. So this is a head scratcher for me. Have a beautiful Monday, my brother. So BJ, very much appreciate this. And I think your point is very much in line with Jos Verstappen's comments last week, which were the team was compromising Max's championship by not deploying a separate strategy that maybe would have put him in a position to collect more points. But kind of curious about your thoughts on BJ's questions. Yeah, I mean, BJ raises a great point. I mean, in North American sport, sports, we're used to, you know, what the coach says is what happens on the court, what happens on the ice, and what happens on, on the field, right? That's, it's. I mean, basically, coach has control over everything. But I mean, Formula One is a little bit different because you always have like a number one driver or a number two driver. And especially with a number one team, like a top team like Ferrari or Red Bull or Mercedes, that team tends to be built around one or focused around one specific driver, be it a Lewis Hamilton, be it a Charles Leclerc, be it a Max Verstappen. And then you get a lot of supporting players like your Valtteri Bottas's, your Sergio Perez's, your um, Carlos Sainz's, who are all very, very good, very capable drivers who in their own rights are capable of winning multiple races every year. And they're not just there to play. They are there to play a supporting role. And Valtteri Bottas did a fantastic job of doing that in those five or six years or whatever it was that, uh, that he was at uh, Mercedes because he was quick. He was going to be able to get the most out of that car, but he was not quicker than Lewis Hamilton most of the time. I mean, he did have his moments. He did win a, a bunch of races, but it was never going to be this situation between Bottas and Hamilton like it was going to be uh, be between Hamilton and Rosberg previously, right? Because, you know, number one, Bottas is a lot more chill than than, than Rosberg was, and that anim animosity was just not going to develop between him and Hamilton unless something really bad happened between the two of them. And then that's, you know, it just went thermonuclear afterwards. But also, Lewis was just naturally the faster driver, and he was just going to win more races. I mean, that's just the, the, the fact of the matter. Now, what's interesting now with Red Bull this year is I, I don't think that there's any doubt, any question that that Max is the superior driver between himself and Sergio Perez. But I think what is interesting is that where Sergio, I would say, took time to find his groove and find his feet at Red Bull in 2021, he's really stepped his game up this year. So now that gap that we saw between himself and Max last year, that gap is much, much smaller now. And it'll be interesting, though. <clears throat> and Monaco is a bit of a difficult track to really make these comparisons on because 
it, it, it's that that race so many times is just a lottery. Whoever gets out front and just keeps their nose clean can basically just just park it up front and then take that one home. I mean, look at Ricardo who won it in what was it 2018? I think it was when he had what was his MGUK or his MGUH. He was basically what 25 or 30 percent deficient in horsepower, though he was able to have a good pit stop or two. He was managed to keep it yep. front. Yeah, and even though he had a big concertina effect of cars behind him just because of the the size of the cars and the narrowness of and the, the characteristics of that that track he was able to win it and you know you know all power to him he did what he did to bring the car home first so i mean the the spain conversation is a little bit different because that's a proper track <clears throat> baku will be an interesting situation this weekend because even though it's a street circuit it is not a street circuit like we've seen and we've seen a lot already this year we've seen australia we've seen jeddah we've seen monaco and now Miami. we're going to Miami, another one. So five out of the seven races have been on street circuits uh, so far. Now, now race under uh, number eight is going to be on a street circuit as well. But it's a street circuit unlike any other. I mean, we've got that very long, was it two mile long straight down uh, coming out of the last turn into start finish where they're doing what, about 210, 220 miles per hour? 380 kilometers. So just on that point, we'll talk about this later, but I remember during qualifying in 2016 when I think it was, I can't remember if it was Nico or Valtteri Bottas clocked in at 380 kilometers an hour. Like we're talking a shade under 400 kilometers an hour, which is absurd. But anyways, I didn't mean to interject. Please go, go. No, what I was going to say is like now that we're we're getting into a portion of the season where we're getting back <clears> – <throat> excuse me, to racing on proper tracks, it's going to be interesting to see where that delta is between Sergio and, and Max and whether or not we're going to see more situations where Checo's in front and he's going to be wanting to stay out front or is Max going to be like leaning on the, uh, you know, pressuring on the pit wall to flip them around because, you know, he's the team leader, right? So it is, it's, it's an interesting one, but I think, by default, you know, you go with Max because he's the guy that you've built your team around. He's the guy that's a reigning world champion. And unless uh, Sergio leapfrogs him by virtue of his own work in the the, the season this year, I'd, I don't see it happening. Definitely. Completely, completely, completely agree. All right. Well, let's move on to the next uh, next one. And this is a driver salary cap. So why don't you just take this one away, Mr. H? Yeah, this is one I'm pretty passionate about. So if you are newer to Formula One, you're probably aware that until the last couple of years, Formula One has operated without any functional budget constraints at all, meaning that the biggest teams could spend an unlimited amount of money developing their cars, building factories, running cars and wind tunnels, investing in in farmer or server farms so they can run unlimited computational fluid dynamic models, et cetera, et cetera. That's also meant that teams weren't restricted on the amount of money they could pay their drivers. Now, the last couple of years, via the new 2020 Concord Agreement, which is the agreement between the teams and the FIA and the Formula One commercial rights body, the new Concord Agreement has instituted a cost cap, and it's been slowly decelerating. So it started at $145 million, now $140, and it'll finally settle next year at $135. Although, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, there's a lot of pressure to lift that a little bit to account for the global inflationary pressures that we're seeing. But one of the conversations that's come up is that, hey, look, that cost cap doesn't include driver salaries and nor does it include the salaries of the top three highest paid uh, 
members of the team aside from the drivers. One of the drums that started to be beaten in the background of the sport now, especially from some of the smaller teams, is this desire to institute a driver salary cap. And for those of us in North America, this is something that we're pretty conditioned to. The NBA has a salary cap. The NHL has a salary cap. In fact, it lost an entire season in 2004, 2005, because the board of governors and the owners were so adamant about implementing a salary cap. And of course, the NFL which has the worst players union in all of professional sports, has a fierce salary cap. Major League Baseball operates a slightly different model. But that said, we're conditioned to the idea of a salary cap. It sounds more and more like certain teams within Formula One want to institute a salary cap as well. And I think on the surface, they may communicate this as being, hey, it's about competitive parity. And if we as Haas can only commit $30 million a year of salary to a driver's as a Example, as an example, if we as Haas can only commit $30 million a year and Ferrari and Mercedes and Red Bull can only commit $30 million a year, maybe then we have an opportunity to lure away a Max Verstappen or to lure away a Lewis Hamilton. And I think my thoughts on this are, are quite frankly that one, the best drivers will always be attracted to the best situations and the best situations are the teams that are successful. But I also really take exception to the idea that there should be a driver salary cap because I think what we've seen now in the last couple of years is this cost cap that's been introduced to the sport has significantly driven down the operational costs of all of the teams. But at the same time, their revenues from sponsorship, from racing are booming. Some of these teams now, aside from some of those peak cigarette tobacco years, they're seeing record revenues, but because they've got this cost cap, they're now seeing record pressures. And for me now to see this idea of like, hey, as an opportunity to extract even more value out of the team, let's apply a salary cap or a cap to the earnings potential of the drivers to me is total BS. Like, as far as I'm concerned, the drivers are absolutely the lifeblood of the sport. They're the face of the sport. And let's remember, this isn't golf. This isn't the NBA. This isn't Major League Baseball. These are the drivers that are piloting these 380 kilometer an hour vehicle and assuming all of the physical risk of the sport. To me, the idea of instituting a salary cap when the sport is already in a really great, healthy place financially is totally unnecessary. If the sport was bleeding out and teams needed to protect themselves from themselves and a salary cap for the drivers was a way of doing that, I get it. I just, I don't think it makes sense. I don't know. What do you think, buddy? Yeah, you know, you raise a couple of really good points there. I, I like the one that you raised that, you know, if they have some sort of salary cap in place and then it makes a bit more of a, you know, the P word, parity, right? And I, I think that uh, that word is often probably justifiably overused when talking about uh, North American sports, because like you say, it's part of the landscape. <laughs> salary caps are just something that uh, we're, we're used to. But you make an interesting point saying that if there was this sort of parity and limits on driver's salary, that you could see a team like a Haas or a Williams or whoever making a play for a Max Verstappen or a Lewis Hamilton. And I find that very, you know, very interesting. I find that kind of tantalizing. But, you know, having said that, I'm also, I guess I guess I'm a bit of a free market capitalist in that way, because when it comes to salaries and things like that, it's, you know, your your worth is what you can negotiate, right? And I, I don't think that matters in, 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 a, in a normal 
everyday job, like, you know, 99.9% of us listening to this show have, right? Is that what you're worth is what you're able to extract and negotiate from your employer, either as when you go to work there, or, you know, maybe you're able to, you you get a raise, or maybe you're able to negotiate a raise and some benefits, whatever. I mean, there's, you know, so many different ways to, to slice that apple, right? But, you know, when you, when you look at it in context, you know, we both drive desks for a living. We're not strapping ourselves <laughs> into a missile so with like with, with like a, a like a thousand horsepower strapped to the back and flying around and, and, and piloting that thing literally as fast as you can through every straight bend corner, whatever it is. And even though that in this day and age with carbon fiber, with survival cells, with halos, with fire retardant suits and these space age helmets they wear, there is an inherent risk in this sport, in in, in motorsport in general. And, you know, you go back to Roman Grosjean back in 2020 at Secure, that horrible moment that really brought it back to sobering reality just how dangerous it is for these for these drivers in any sport you know and it you just know that whenever they pan away from an accident like that that you know it's not a good thing and they they keep it off what's happening until they know that that person is okay we even saw it the other week at monaco when mick had that big shunt and the back of the car came off which you know it's supposed designed to do in this uh, day and age but they, you know, in case that there's some big injury, they don't want uh, any of that uh, being caught on, on on television when 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 a driver's at their most vulnerable and needing help, right? So I think it really goes to show that that what these people do is it's it's dangerous. It's something special, and they should be compensated uh, fairly for it. And you know, I think it'd be kind of weird if you take say took your Lebrons, you took your uh, Tom Brady's. Uh, you know, and, and guys like that. And then, you know, LeBron is making, I don't know, throw it out there, $50 million this year. Brady's making $35 million. Wouldn't it be weird for Lewis Hamilton, like, a, like a, a, you know, potentially he's not done winning championships, right? It's until he retires. I mean, he could be more than a seven-time world champion. Wouldn't it just be weird if that conversation Lewis comes up and say, yeah, I'm only earning $6 million bucks this year you know it it just doesn't sound right this is supposed to be the pinnacle of global motorsport and these drivers should be like rock stars i mean brady's a household name lebron is a household name i mean i i can go and i i can name off probably 10 athletes without even thinking that that, that earn mega bucks that are the top of their sport whatever it might be and are rewarded handsomely and extravagantly for it and Rightly so, because there are only a handful of people in the world that can do what they do. And in some cases, they're the only one that can do it anywhere. Yeah, I've just got two other thoughts on this. The first is that, you know, you can't even give the benefit of the doubt to the teams in the circumstance that a salary cap was introduced. Because you can't say, look, you know what, rather than paying out $50 million in salary, you're going to pay out 30, which means you're going to save 20. You can't say, well, you know, the team's going to take that 20 and invest it in the factory, invest it in the team. They can't do that because there's a cost cap and all of the teams are spending to the cost cap already. So really, the only thing that they can do with that money is record it as profit. And I don't want to see that happening with the owners, to be totally honest. I would love if they would take that money, invest it in into driver's academies and into giving underrepresented groups the opportunities to excel and succeed in motorsports. But I don't trust that they would do that. The other thought that I would have is this. If 
Formula One was to institute a salary cap, what's to say that a ambitious, rich indie team doesn't start luring drivers away? What's to say a NASCAR owner doesn't start luring drivers away? And then all of a sudden, the pinnacle of motorsports isn't the pinnacle of motorsports because you can't retain your top talent. And then I said I had two points, but I actually have a third. The other one is this. If Formula One was adamant on instituting a salary cap, those 20 drivers need to get together and form a union and force force Formula One to collectively bargain because the only way these drivers could ward off the ill effects of a salary cap is by having a unified front and demanding a collective bargaining agreement. And then all of a sudden, for the first time, they have leverage. I think even if they just threaten to unionize in the face of a salary cap, that might be enough to deter the sport from doing so because the last thing you want is a lockout over a CBA. The last thing you want is a driver strike because that would be a black eye for a sport that is absolutely booming financially and from a popularity perspective right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so true. I've got a couple of things to add to this, but uh, let's take another quick break and we'll come back because um, Pierre Gasly has some thoughts that are sort of kind of related to, to this. And he's talking a little bit more now that there there's like, I wouldn't go as far to say a schism between the best and the rest of Formula One, but it's certainly becoming a bit more of a two-tier system anyways. We'll talk about that in a moment, so don't go away. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Okay, and welcome back to the show. You're listening to Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton. This is Scuderia F1. Uh, Before the break, Mark, we were tossing around once again the idea of a Formula One salary cap, which seems to be picking up a little bit more speed in uh, this day and age. Uh, You know, I I think that the the cost cap 100% makes sense. Uh, I do think that uh, what with the ridiculous amount of inflation, which they say is still single digits, but I think it's got to be getting close to double digit figures now, it needs to be adjusted to help teams, especially when it comes to what we were talking about earlier for transportation, for freight and things like that, and just give them the the, the opportunity to operate reasonably within this, um, you know, this, this environment that we're living in. But Going building on that and the salary cap theme a little bit more. Uh, I was going to say Toro Rosso driver. I still haven't, you know, talk about these mental blocks. You know, I still haven't completely migrated from Toro Rosso to Alpha Tauri, but uh, here you go. Anyways, uh, this comes from uh, Formel 1 or 1.de, so Formula One de German website. So uh, Pierre says that he's disappointed because uh, he, in in his mind, he believes that the top teams in Formula One are more in the, of their own league than uh, they ever uh, were before. I mean, you, you look at it, uh, I mean, I read off the top of the show, I'll just grab my notes here again. Constructors said uh, championship. 
So the, the 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 big three are still there. Orders flipped around compared to where it's been, you know, over the past uh, several uh, several years. Two thirty five for Red Bull, one hundred ninety nine for Ferrari, one hundred thirty four for Mercedes. Which you know, considering the way that Mercedes has um, underperformed by their own high standards through the first seven races of the year, is not an unreasonable amount of uh, points. I mean, George has had a couple of good uh, races. I mean, he's had, what, a couple of podiums out of it? Yeah, he's had the two third places. So that's a reasonable amount uh, of points for a, this high-flying team that is used to, to to winning it all. But then you go from uh, Mercedes to McLaren. I mean, McLaren is only 59 points. You know, Mercedes, who are having an off-season by their own standards, has more than double the points than McLaren does through the first seven races. So I, I think Pierre makes, uh, you know, a, a really good uh, or raises a really important issue. I think that uh, for for him, he might be a little bit disappointed that the the new regs haven't maybe leveled the playing fields maybe a little bit more evenly than he had hoped for. But you know, to counter that, <clears throat> you know, I I still think to a certain extent we're, we're we're still finding our way and feeling out these new regulations. I mean, some of the teams have introduced upgrades over the past couple of races. We've seen the reduction in porpoising. We've seen new components go onto wings and things like that. So I think this year is very much a fact-finding year. I think this is a year to really discover what these uh, new cars are capable of. And you know that the, the designers and the engineers are really working around the clock designing the 23 cars. But yeah, I, I think that th- there is this this gap between the top three and everyone else. But I'm I'm still hopeful at some point it will balance out. I, I just think that, you know, you have to remember that a, a lot of this stuff was d- designed and built before the cost cap really came into force. I mean, these cars have been being designed for the past several years. So I think it might take a year or two to find a new benchmark, find a, a new e- equilibrium in these new regulations before they sort it out. But I don't know. So, That's just my take. You, What do you think, sir? So I'm glad that you're calm and that you're in a good place emotionally because I'm in super panic mode. Oh, really? I, okay, I knew, wow. <laughs> I knew the field was... Uh, I'm trying to think about the best way to put this. I knew there wasn't as much competitive balance this year as I thought there was until I went and did a little bit of research. So let me read you through this. So bear with me. After seven races in the 2021 championship last year, Red Bull was leading the pack with 215 points and four race wins. This year, they have 225, 235 points and five race wins. Last year, number two was Mercedes, three wins, 178 points. This year, it's Ferrari, two race wins, 199 points. Third place last year was McLaren, zero wins and 110 points. This year, it's Mercedes, 134 points and no race wins. Last year, fourth place was Ferrari with 94 points, no race wins. This year, it is McLaren with 59 points, zero race wins. You could argue, Mark, that there's less competitive balance this year than even there was, that there was even last year which is to me a little bit alarming. Last year, it was really a three-team race, really a two-team race. This year, you've really got three teams mixing it up, but I'm not going to give the FIA, I'm not going to give Formula One the benefit of the doubt in this case that, hey, you've got possibly three teams competing for a championship because one of those three is Ferrari, who wasn't within the top three last year, and Ferrari, with their wealth of resources, should always have been in the top three, but they were just recovering from the penalty that was 
pressed on them a couple of years ago because of their cheating scandal. So the reality is the three richest teams in the sport by a significant margin are the three teams that are competing for driver's titles and the constructor's title this year. That's not a competitive balance, especially when you look at where Mercedes or where McLaren Mercedes is. And after McLaren Mercedes, it just drops into an abyss. So I don't know that we've seen anything this year. You could say, yeah, there's three teams competing for constructors this year instead of two like last year. But there should always have been three. And it was an anomaly that Ferrari wasn't competing. So I'm a, I am I say I'm in panic mode. I'll, I'll walk that back a little bit. I think you're right. We're still early into this new period of regulations, but regulations are always going to change, right? And yeah. when we get to 26, we're going to have new power units and the cars will then again be revised to accommodate the new power units. So it's always this state of flux and a state of change. I think you're right. Next year, it should be a little bit better, but what we've seen so far through races has not been an improvement in competitive balance. Yeah, but look at some of the teams uh, further down the grid. I mean, I, I think that Lando's having a decent year so far, maybe not quite as good as the past couple of years, but he's pulling in all the points for, for, for McLaren. And we we talked about Danny Ricardo was was it two weeks ago and that you know the the state of affairs there. I mean the fact that 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 Zach Brown is now publicly saying that things aren't working you know the way that they envisioned and the way that Danny had envisioned uh, for them to happen to McLaren, I think is quite an admission. You look at Aston Martin, which has been a frustrating experiment for for both of us to watch, and I'm sure for many others as well. You look at Alfa Romeo, who are better than where they've been for the past couple of years. And, you know, Bottas has had some decent results, but they've had reliability problems. Uh, Joe Guan Yu has not been able to, to bring it home. But, I mean, he's having a decent campaign so far for a rookie driver. I don't want to throw unnecessary shade at him. Uh, Williams is what Williams always kind of has been for the past several seasons has started very good and then they they've kind of uh, petered off so i guess what i'm saying is that sure there's this big gap between mercedes to mclaren and then like you say it kind of like peters out from there but those teams that like like from mclaren down to the bottom there nobody's to me they've kind of really struggled all of them to to one extent to to another to really establish themselves uh, this year and I, I think that because of that, they've divided those remaining points among them more than perhaps we've seen in in other years. It's not all McLaren taking those points home. It's not all Alpine. I think that that more points are being split by more teams because I mean Williams has points now. I mean how many how many years in the past several years have we gone? two thirds or entire way through a season before they even scored a single point? before the end of the year and they were lucky to get maybe one or two points by the end of the championship so i think from that point of view it's 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 a little bit different so i don't know if it's a bit of a false positive i'm just sort of tempering my panic <laughs> maybe a little bit more successfully for you or i've got you know blinders on and i've completely talked myself into a situation that may or may not uh, exist so i i guess the, the the best thing that we can all collectively do is okay let's enjoy the battle between ferrari and uh, and uh, and red bull and perhaps mercedes at some point although that's looking maybe a little bit wishful at this point but keep a close eye on everybody else and see where these remaining points are getting div uh, divvied up by how many points are alpine taking compared to Haas and and there on out. Okay, uh, next story. So there's no better option for Gasly than Alpha Tauri after Perez got his two-year extension with Red Bull a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, 
if you're Pierre Gasly, you know that that's got to be oddly comforting and oddly probably just as frightening and maybe frustrating to think that you know I've improved over the past couple of years. Yes, I had my shot with Red Bull. Yes, it didn't work out, or no, it didn't work out. I came back to to Alpha Tauri. Won a race. I've had some very solid, um, you know, a, a very solid time with them since. I think I've made a good case to get a better, more competitive drive. But you know, when the music stops, how many of those chairs, those magical seats that these top teams are going to be open? Because we know Red Bull's locked up. We know that Mercedes is locked up, but that's dependent completely on what Lewis Hamilton uh, does, because I think that Lewis deservedly at this point in his career can basically decide when he wants to to, to walk away from the sport or if he wants to come back uh, again. I think that that's his prerogative. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. And then Ferrari, they've got uh, Charles and Carlos uh, locked up for for the time being. I mean, say it doesn't work out with uh, McLaren for uh, uh, you know with uh, Danny Ricardo. Is that maybe an option that Gasly looks at? And if so, is that like a lateral move, or would it be a lateral move if um, Fernando Alonso uh, say leaves Alpine? You know, th- th- there's a lot of great questions. I mean, it kind of blends into that conversation we we just uh, have or we just had on Pierre's own comments that this gap between the top three teams and everybody else is so big now in 2022 that. Sure, maybe he could go to another team, but it may may or may not be an improvement. So am, am I in a really weird and uncomfortable place that I might be actually agreeing with Helmut Marco that <laughs> maybe I don't want to? Because he said some pretty outlandish things in the past that, you know, I would want to agree with in, in, in most circumstances. But this, you know, I'm I'm finding it hard to make a case against uh, Marco's comments. I don't know about you, sir. You really just have to survey the landscape of Formula One. Let's remember, there's only 10 teams, and he's not going to Ferrari. He's not going to Mercedes. He's not going to Red Bull. And if those are the big three traditional contenders, where else could he go to get a competitive seat? And I guess it really just comes down to what he wants to do personally with his career. Is he looking for a big payday? Because maybe that's available somewhere else, but maybe that's with a less competitive car. Or maybe he's simply looking for a departure from Red Bull, which of course has been the family that he's been wed to for his entire professional motorsports career. Or maybe he's looking for an opportunity to just to drive a more competitive car. And to that end, if that is his desire, and it probably is, I don't know what the I don't know what the answer is. And we're going to talk about a driver in a couple of minutes that may not have a Formula One seat next year, or may not have a seat with his current team, and maybe that opens up an opportunity for Gasly to look at McLaren. But that is purely speculative, and it's it's uncomfortable and maybe not even professional sometimes to speculate about a driver going to a team where both drivers that are there are currently under contract for the next year. But ultimately, maybe the seat that's ultimately right for him is currently occupied and things will change in the future. But he admittedly as well has not been great this year. He was very good in 2020. It was very much a recovery drive for him. There's a lot of renewed optimism in his uh, future. He was good in 2021, but this year he has not been spectacular. And whether that's adjusting to the car or whether that's just bad luck, I'm not totally clear. But I think that uh, if he's looking for a competitive ride, I don't know where that's going to be. And ultimately that Honda powered that quote-unquote Honda-powered Alpha Tauri is still a very, 
very capable car unless he wants to take a risk and go to a team like an Alpine or a Aston right. Martin and yeah. uh, and take a shot in the dark. Well, you know, I, I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword when you think about it. I mean, we're you know, you hinted at it nicely. We're going to talk about Danny Ricardo in a in a minute here, and I think you know, four years on from his shock decision to walk away from Red Bull, I think it's pretty fair to say. I mean, apart from a couple of podiums and that uh, very unexpected win at Monza last year, I I think it's. It's nothing short of I would maybe an unmitigated disaster is a little bit too much, but it is it is it has not worked out well for Daniel. I mean, he got to Renault slash well, yeah, I guess he would have left before it became Alpine with the rebrand, but he kind of hit them. I would say at their nadir, but then definitely on the upswing. I mean, he did manage to score a couple of podiums, you know, in twenty twenty, which was yeah, you know, it was a great story for for them. But I mean, this this was a driver when he was at Red Bull a couple of years years ago was definitely in form. I mean, you could almost count on him. You, it, it was almost money in the bank to expect that Ricardo was going to win maybe one, perhaps two races per year. What's, what's he won in his career now? About seven races or something like that? I don't recall off the, the, the top of my head. I mean, it, it, it's not double digits, but it's it's more than a than, than a handful and it hasn't worked out. But I mean, I think that he wanted to do was to get away from, from that Red Bull system because the one thing that uh, he was saying that after he left when he went to Renault was he was finally able to design his own helmet and have his own kind of like creativity, which was something that he didn't have at uh, at Red Bull because they obviously put a lot of their own branding onto the driver's helmets in around their own styling preferences and things like that. I mean, to a person like me, I probably wouldn't care so much but I mean, obviously, that's a thing for, for for someone else. But I mean, Red Bull at that time were on a bit of an upswing, right? I mean, but he saw the writing on the wall. It was obvious that he knew that that team was going to be built around Max. I think it was very interesting. I think it was in DTS season two when you saw Christian Horner talking to Ricardo's parents and saying, you know, how much they liked them having the team, how much they wanted to have him back. And then, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be... You know, pretty honest. When that news came out in the summer of 2018, that he decided to get up and walk away from Red Bull and go try try something else, especially go to Renault. At that point, I was just like, "Is this really a good good decision on your behalf?" Because I have some serious doubts here. But hey, you know, you you probably have a much much better position to make that call than I do. So more power to you. But you know, to to kind of bring this one full circle is I I really don't know where where Gasly would go for a more competitive drive. I mean, I could see maybe the the payday angle to it, depending where he goes, depending what seats open up. And I can't remember, was there something as, as many as 10 seats that could potentially come available this year? I think it was uh, that you know, with drivers that are out of contract. But hey, if they're not in those top three teams unless something very unexpected happens. And I mean, I couldn't imagine Max Verstappen at the end of the year saying, you know what, I won a championship in, in 2021 and maybe he wins it this year. Who knows, right? And, you know, I've, I've won two world championships and, you know, now I think I've accomplished everything I want to in Formula One. So here I am in my early 20s. I think I'm just hanging up and walk away from the sport. You know, that that just uh, is, is is pushing credibility to the extreme there. But I don't know. I could see why you want to get away, but where to but let let's get into this one here about ricardo so why don't you take this one up because you've already hinted at it so this is a story that came uh, via the official formula one.com website so you take it up and uh i'll run support <laughs> thanks for that i I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate the handoff my friend that's that's what we call teamwork in the podcast industry there we go if, 
if you listened last week, if you la- listened the, the week before, you know that there is this ever-growing drumbeat that's questioning the future of Daniel Ricciardo, not just with McLaren, which could possibly be a landing destination for Pierre Gasly, but in Formula One as a whole. And you alluded to the fact that his departure from Red Bull in 2018 was a risky proposition. That was an incredibly capable car. He was winning races, but it was also clear that he wasn't going to be the alpha driver in that situation. And I think what we saw in Baku in 2018, which is the two drivers coming together, really spilled the end of his career with Red Bull. He went to Renault for two unceremonious years. He did manage to score a couple of podiums in the COVID-shortened season, at which point he departed from McLaren, which was actually a possible landing destination even in 2019, but it didn't work out from a contract perspective. His first season, not a good year, a lot of adjustment to that car. He did win a race. That was a remarkable moment. I think we were all very, very happy for him. He's one of the most likable guys in Formula One, but this year has been an unmitigated disaster, and his teammate, Lando Norris, a much younger driver, has been destroying him in practice and qualifying and in the race, and even when his young teammate has tonsillitis, he manages to significantly outperform his uh, his much older veteran race race winning driver. So it's been a little bit unfortunate. Now we talked last week about the fact that CEO of McLaren racing, Zach Brown had some very stern words about the future of Daniel Ricardo. And I'll just revisit these real quick in case you didn't hear last week's podcast, but says Zach Brown, Daniel is just not comfortable yet with the car. We're trying everything we can short of his victory at Monza and a few other races is generally not met his or our expectations as far as what we're expecting. And I think all you can do is keep working hard as a team, keep communications going, keep pushing and hope that whatever is not kind of clicking at the moment clicks here shortly. Now, what we know is that when he came to this team, he signed a three-year agreement. He's in year two of that agreement. Now, it's also been reported by a couple of different sources that there is a driver option for the third year that would have given him the ability to opt out and seek a contract with another team. At this point, given the fact that it's unlikely that another team would pursue him, he would be likely to opt into that option if it is such a thing. Now, the reality is in Formula One, without a collective bargaining agreement, Driver contracts are worthless. They're absolutely worthless. We saw even a couple of years ago, at the end of 2019, Sergio Perez signed a three-year contract with Racing Point. That was pretty much torn up and tossed aside halfway through 2020. So if McLaren don't feel that Daniel Ricciardo is the right fit for this team, rest assured he will be bought out and he will be long gone from that team. Now, in this story, he himself, Daniel Ricardo, has acknowledged that this has been a tough transition. And reading from the same F1.com article, he says, no one's going to be harder on me than myself, he said. I know that I don't want to be racing around in 10th, 12th places. I still believe I can be at the front and belong at the front. So it's been a little bit more certainly testing at times in terms of us trying to get up there and maximize myself in this car. But we're working together hard at it. The team wants it. I want it. So we're just working through it. So again, one of the most likable guys in the sport, charismatic, personable. He's made a huge impression on American sports fan, but it's just not coming together for him. And given the impact that he's having on the team from a a financial perspective, again, you know what, like you said a couple of minutes ago, almost all of those points that his team have scored this year have come from Lando Norris. He is literally costing his team due to his poor performance tens of millions of dollars in prize money and at some point is it not just cheaper for the team potentially to buy out this contract and bring in a driver who can pay for themselves by scoring championship points 
my friend, I don't know what else I have to add. I, I'm I'm sad talking about this because I like him so much. Oh, totally. Yeah, you know, I, I find him a, a very, you know, I, he's he's a great personality. I really enjoyed him at it when, when he was competitive and, and and doing well at Red Bull. And you know, it, it is disappointing and frustrating to watch him struggle like he's done over the past three and a half years. Last year at McLaren in year one, I was willing to give him a pass because this was a car that he was not used to. He was one of and a whole power bunch unit, of unit and power and, unit. Great point. And power unit that he was not familiar with. And he was one of a, a number of drivers that uh, that switched teams. I mean, look at Sergio. I mean, Sergio struggled a, a long time, but he did find his feet with, with Red Bull later in the year. And, and look at him now. We're into a new year, new car, new everything, and he's thriving at Red Bull. So you, you look at, at, you know, kind of compare where Sergio is and that sort of... Uh, that curve that he's on and you compare it to where Ricardo is at McLaren. Yes. You would have expected him to struggle in year one at McLaren, but in year two, especially when it's a new car, not just for himself, a new car for his teammate, there should be less of a gap between the two of them. And it's, it's, it's almost a carbon copy of where he was in relation to Lando 12 months ago. And, you know, I'm, I'm concerned for the guy because like you say, at some point they're going to sit down and they're going to make a, a, a business decision, right? I mean, maybe they, they, they took around, they take a look around the driver landscape and say, okay, we don't think that there's anybody else available. That's, that's or currently available or going to be available at the end of the year. That's going to be a significant upgrade from Daniel Ricardo, so maybe we stick with him through this uh, next year, and we look to fill that seat in twenty four. But having said that, you led into the story so nicely by you know, referencing those comments by Zach Brown, and I don't care if it's Formula One or the NFL or the NBA or the National Hacky Sack League, for that matter. The moment that your head coach or your GM comes out into the media. And that that those private conversations that uh, that you have between yourself and your driver, or yourself and your quarterback, or your point guard, whoever it is, as soon as those spill over into the public realm, that is no bueno. <laughs> that is not a good place to be. And considering too that he's thirty two, is not really a great place to be. I mean, you, you look at Lewis; he's still doing good things at thirty eight. I mean, look at Fernando at, at what forty one, almost forty two. He can still drive the bejeebus out of a, a Formula One car. So age doesn't necessarily mean a thing. But, you know, the, the thing is, he's been around for a while. He's got race wins under his belt. He has a decent resume. And with that, he's going to try and command, a, you know, a, a heftier salary from somebody. And, you know, somebody might be looking at a combination things. Well, yeah, you had a pretty good run when you were at Red Bull. Yeah, not so good at Renault and and uh, McLaren, but the the good times you had with both of those teams were kind of blips rather than the, the, the than the norm. You know, you're on the wrong side of thirty now. I don't know if we're we're willing to pay out. Say, I don't know what Danny's getting. Well, let let's just throw it out there: fifteen million a year. But hey, you know what? Maybe we'll go. Maybe we'll go half that. We'll we'll get, we'll, we'll meet in the middle. And, and say, you know, we're, 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 you're worth maybe 10 or eight or seven and a half, whatever it might be. I mean, would he be willing to take such a big discount in salary to stick around? Maybe, I don't know. It's, it's one of those questions, but I just don't think that he's in a really good spot, you know, a with himself, B with the team and C, 
you know, in the car itself. And, you, you know, <laughs> you got to be concerned whereabouts things are going for Ricardo. Because, I mean, if he's going to have to turn it around, it's got to happen to sweeps or else it's, it's going to end in tears. My prediction is he will not be back with this team next year. And I think part of that is regardless of what ultimately they could come to an agreement on in terms of salary, I just think McLaren has such a deep stable of talent that they're building up. And obviously they're using their new IndyCar platform as a mechanism to develop young drivers. And again, how many times have we heard of Colton Herta being linked with this team? And of course, people jump up and down saying super license points, super license points. But where there's a will, there's a way. I just, I cannot see them bringing him back. His his performance would have to increase exponentially over the back half of the season for them to be able to make that, like you said, to make that business case to keep him in one of their cars. Well, and not even drivers they have in their own system. I mean, we saw Alex Albon tear off the Red Bull Band-Aid last year and 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 move to, um, to, to, to Williams. I mean, you, you can't tell me that a guy like Oscar Piastri, a guy like Nick DeFries, and, you know, just keep on going down that list you know, would not be willing to break ties with whoever they are if, if there's any opportunity to do so to get that drive in Formula One just because they are so tough and so elusive and so difficult to come by. I, I just um, I, I just really, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think that unless things turn around drastically in the short term that he won't be with this team and perhaps not even Formula One in 2023, but well, we'll see. Now, one, well, actually, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. There's a couple quick stories we want to get to, and then we're going to preview the race itself. Let's take a breather here. We'll be back in a short moment, so don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break for some messages. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. Mark Daly, Mark Hamilton, Doss Marks, breaking down all the latest uh, Formula One news. And the next one comes via Adam Stern at ESPN. And uh, Adam was uh, discussing and um, was talking about the, the, the fact that perhaps Andretti won't get into Formula One on name and brand recognition alone. And that uh, perhaps he or Michael Andretti and the Andretti uh, Motorsport brand will have to come into Formula One via or in conjunction with a manufacturer that isn't in currently in the sport. What do you think, Mark? Is uh, is Adam talking some sense? Uh, do, you, yeah, do, do you agree with this? Yeah, okay. hundred percent. I I have been very much aligned with the apprehension that Formula One and the FIA have had about allowing him to enter the sport. The, the way to think about this is it's not the NBA, it's not the NHL where you can accommodate 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 teams and expand exponentially. There are two teams left. That's it. You can fit realistically maybe 26 cars on the grid, but probably 24, meaning that with 10 teams already competing, you have two slots left two slots, if you are going to give one of those up, it damn well better be to (laughs) a phenomenal, a phenomenal package. And I think just adding it out to a new, I don't want to say a customer team, but a team that would be reliant on a manufacturer to support them from a power unit perspective. I don't think that adds enough to Formula One. And for all we know, Formula One could be having closed door conversations with BMW and Toyota and Ford and Chevrolet. We don't know. But the reality is if I'm Formula One, why am I going to rush into this? Formula One's in a fantastic place right now without Andretti Motorsport. We're going to three races next year. They 
sell out instantly. TV ratings in the U.S. are growing. What is the rush to get a team onto the grid for the sake of having a team on the grid? The last time they added one, it didn't work out well. And Gene Haas promised the world before he entered Formula One. I don't doubt that Andretti has the best interest of the sport in mind, but I still think they're a relatively low budget option. And I think Adam's right here that ultimately if F1 has two more openings in the near future for additional entries, I would want to do everything in my power to accommodate a manufacturer, a Ford, a Chevy, a Toyota, a BMW. And I'm not saying that there's a possibility that any of those teams are going to join, but I'm not going to rush into adding an 11th team for the sake of adding an 11th team. The reality is Formula One's doing really well in the US and I don't know what value they would necessarily add immediately. So I get I get the apprehension, I get the concern. Yeah, yeah, I, I I totally agree that I think that uh, that Michael Andretti and Andretti Motorsport are very sincere. I think that the de- the desire to get into the Formula One is there. I think that it's just proving a lot more difficult than they 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 realize. But yeah, I mean, if they were to come in and partner up with someone, there's a lot of really juicy names that uh, that you threw out there from from Chevrolet all the way up to, to to BMW. We know that Audi and Porsche are coming in 2026, one way or another. Well, we'll see how that all shakes out and who they partner up with uh, in the future. But yeah. To, to fill out those couple of slots, it's going to be a lot of discussion. There's going to be a lot of speculation until there's some announcements. You know, that's it's 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 that's what it's going to be. But as you said, there is a we don't know. Perhaps they are in closed doors discussion with someone. We won't know until those are all made public. Until then, we can guess about it. We can talk about it, which is a lot of fun, but doesn't necessarily mean anything in reality until it becomes if, fact. If this was a Andretti Ford entry, I think it would be a slam dunk. And I think that Formula One would be drooling all over itself to make it happen. But it's not. It's effectively a customer team coming in to enter the sport. And I would also just add quickly, and I know we need to move on to the next, also an Adam Stern story, but I also don't think that the public campaigning that that Andretti has done in a bid to gain public favor and to gain the favor of the other teams has sat well with Formula One or the FIA. I don't think they've appreciated the way that he's gone about campaigning for a team. Yeah. Watch this space, as they say. Okay, the next uh, story, like you said, comes uh, again via Adam Stern, and he's uh, referencing an article that was on the businessinsider.com written by Claire Atkinson. Netflix, ESPN, NBC Universal, and Amazon are all supposedly vying for the opportunity to bid for the U.S. rights to Formula One. ESPN has reportedly bid $70 million, which is 10 times more than the current rate. And it's it's exciting to hear uh you know this this uh, you know this news because once you get multiple networks and those are all big networks big media outlets bidding for the rights of formula 1 i think it is fair to finally say that formula 1 has arrived in the usa formula 1 is a thing because when you're talking about serious cash like that it's got to be a thing right definitely this is interesting, and I, I would say that if ESPN does retain the rights to Formula One, I think they're paying $5 million a year right now, which is basically free. I got to think that the totally. only way they're going to be able to cover 
cover that commitment, that financial commitment to liberty is by playing in race ads. The reality, let's be very honest, the reality is right now they are not obligated to contractually or even financially because they're paying almost nothing to have the rights to hosting Formula One. So I think the risk for ESPN and for our American audience down south is that if you consume Formula One on ESPN, be prepared that you might see ads and it might be a good time to switch to the F1 TV Pro app. But the other thing that's really interesting about this is NBC Universal, who previously had the rights prior to ESPN stepping in a couple of years ago, they're sniffing around, Netflix is sniffing around, and Amazon also is sniffing around because, of course, Amazon has been getting more and more into professional sports. Netflix doesn't broadcast any live professional sports today, but given their existing relationship with Formula One, this could be a good entry point for them. It is. It really is amazing to see where we are now in 2022 compared to where we were even five or ten years ago. I mean, you were going to a terrestrial cable, uh, you know, service uh, to 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 get and consume basically everything. Now, a lot of things have gone to streaming platforms, which you know sometimes can be a little bit. It, it can be a blessing, but sometimes it can be a little bit. You know, dear on the old pocketbook because sometimes you can end up having to subscribe to multiple platforms to get all the the different content that you want. You know, somebody that in addition to Formula One, I enjoy my 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 football, I enjoy my hockey, my basketball, I enjoy English and European soccer, I enjoy uh, cycling, and a lot of that is in multiple different places. So at different times, you know, I'm kind of looking. Okay, this is what I really want to watch. Uh, you know, versus what I can afford at the moment. But Formula One always goes to the top of the list. That one takes uh, priority. Some of the other ones, you know, I can still subscribe to through my cable service, you know, but that's a a little bit uh, different. So some of the other ones. Anyways, very exciting to see. Anyhow, one of the reasons we're all here tonight is to look ahead to the Azerbaijan Grand Prix this weekend. This will be the sixth running first was back in 2017 inaugural race around the Baku City Circuit. That year was won by the aforementioned Danny Ricardo. Second was Valtteri Bottas. And third was Canadian boy Lance Stroll, who came third that year. Hamilton won it in 2018. Valtteri Bottas won it in 2019. 2020 was cancelled because of COVID. Last year, Sergio Perez won. Uh, Sebastian Vettel was second. Third was Pierre Gasly. Last year's race, I think, was highlighted by two very scary and almost carbon copy accidents tire tire failures on uh, both the uh, Aston Martin of Lance Stroll and Max Verstappen who were hurtling down the main straight in excess of 200 miles an hour when their rear tires failed thankfully both of them walked away from those cars unscathed and nothing more than uh, a bit of a shock to the system and some very angry words as it was in the case of Max uh, Verstappen but this is a cool track you know, when you look at these different street circuits, I like this one uh, a lot. It has um, some very street circuity characteristics to it, some narrow, tight uh, corners to it. You got that cool complex around the back of the corner, or back of the circuit. At one point, there's only three meters or about ten feet wide, where we saw Charles put it into the tires a couple of years ago in qualifying. Was it last year? I think it was, or was it? No. 20? Yeah, it was. It been. Or was it 2019? 2019. Oh my God! Was it three years ago? Wow, time flies. It's also a track that has a literal freaking castle in the middle of it, and it's got some a real cool combination of some very uh, fast sections, some tight technical sections, and um, 
I'm looking forward to it. And we're pretty much guaranteed to get a safety car, which would explain some of these, uh, you know, rather interesting race classifications that we've seen over the years. It is a a six kilometer long circuit, about Uh, 3.3 quarter miles uh, long. 51 laps, 306.1 kilometers or 170.2 miles long. Last year, uh, it was a two-stop, stop, uh, pardon me, three, I'll stop again, starting again. <laughs> it was a two-stop strategy, three for uh, some of the front runners who were uh, jockeying for the fastest lap at the end. Lap record was set by Charles in uh, 2019. It was a 143.009. And last year, we saw the pit stops for the front runners go between lap uh, 10 and 13. Uh, this year, Pirelli's bringing the, the softest, uh, or pardon me, the hardest in their uh, range, C3, C4, C5s. This is a, a trap that is low grip, low abrasion, and also interesting for a street circuit is also very low downforce. So what are you looking forward to most this weekend? What are some of the stories? Everything, everything, everything about this race gets me excited. I was saying this on the Spaces chat earlier today, but in a way, the Grand Prix in Baku was kind of like a going away present from Bernie Eccleston. If you flash back to early 2014, <laughs> May of 2014, he announced he was working on an agreement to bring Baku under the calendar for, I think, April or May of 2015. It, originally, it was intended to replace Korea, which actually hadn't been on the calendar for a couple of years at that point. Ultimately, it ends up on the calendar in 2016 as the European Grand Prix before becoming the Azerbaijan Grand Prix in 2017 onwards. But I love it for all the reasons that you've described. It's a complex, high-speed street circuit. You have a straight that's worth up to 380 kilometers an hour. In fact, scary or scary fast because as you described, we saw a couple of high-speed Tire failures last year with both Lance Stroll and Max Verstappen. Obviously, we don't want to see anything like that again. And hopefully, hopefully Pirelli's perfected the compound and we should see uh, a better outcome this year. Although, of course, last year it was speculated or rumored that possibly Aston Martin and Red Bull had overinflated those tires jeopardizing the structural integrity of the sidewalls but ultimately i love the track it's i love the fact that it's high speed i love the fact that there are some really complex technical sections i love the look i love the feel it feels grand it feels mesmerizing and it's one of the events that i really get up for and i'll be perfectly honest i i sleep through the french grand prix not because i have any any distaste for the country of France. I just think there's better tracks in that country than that one. I don't get excited about Monaco and I'm not going to be apologetic about that because people (laughs) listen to this podcast in Monaco are probably sitting on their yachts, sipping, sipping their latte or their champagne anyways. But there's a lot of races that I don't get excited about. And this is one of them. And I think it's partly because it's been pretty unpredictable and we've seen some interesting things here over the years. Like you mentioned, we saw Lance Stroll in his rookie season in a really poor Williams score a podium. We saw the two the two Red Bulls come together in 2018 that spelled the end of that relationship or the relationship between Daniel Ricciardo and that team. Of course, last year we saw the two high-speed tire explosions and then on the restart where Lewis Hamilton could, in hindsight, have secured the championship by storming to the front and taking that race win, has a braking blunder and goes straight yep. through on T1. We saw Lewis and Sebastian come together a couple of years ago when Lewis accused Seb of brake checking him um, towards the end of the track. That was the weirdest thing, man. That was such a bizarre moment. So 
I, I don't I don't even know what the storylines necessarily are. Is it is it a redemption race for Charles Leclerc because he didn't have the opportunity to score that much coveted win in Monaco? Is it is it a Mercedes recovery race because they've now principally solved their porpoising issue and they continue to invest in upgrades to that car? Does Red Bull continue to build on their constructors' leads? There's so many things to talk about. What we do know is that the weather is going to be pretty hot, 28 degrees uh, at the track or 28 degrees ambient air temperature on Saturday and Sunday, probably 40, 50 degrees at the track. So it's going to be warm. It's going to be dry. It's going to be hot. A couple of scattered clouds in the sky. But ultimately, I don't know what to predict out of this because it's just ultimately been such an unpredictable race. I think the one thing to consider is that it's high speed, which is going to be beneficial to these cars because they are very, very slippery and they're very fast in a straight line. But it's also an incredibly tight track. And I think we could see drivers penalized for errors because these cars are much less much less tactical than they have been in previous years. And they're much more sluggish and more difficult to handle in tight corners, especially when they're in traffic. So we could see, we could see a lot of safety cars. We could see a lot of yellow flags. I don't know, man, for me, I'm just excited to see. And of course, free practice one is just a couple of hours away. I think it's about 7 a.m. Eastern standard time. So by the time people are listening to this podcast, we'll probably just be wrapping up free practice too. But Ultimately, I'm excited for the weekend because it's unpredictable and I love the backdrop of this traffic or this track in the city skyline. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. I think that uh, you hit on a number of really good points there. I think that um, number one, I think it's going to be fascinating to see where Mercedes uh, come out. I mean, uh, as you mentioned, they have solved the porpoising issue, which was a, a big, big thing for them. So are they going to be able to extract the performance that they think is latent in the, 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 the W13? Is this car going to perform like they think it's capable of? So that is certainly a storyline worth uh, watching. Another one, I think, is the the, the uh, Red Bull v Ferrari battle that we've seen all year because between Ferrari and Red Bull, nobody else has won a race. But I think more to the point is Charles Leclerc wins two out of the first three races. And then out of the, the, the last four races uh, since then, they've all been won by uh, Red Bull. Uh, Max has won three. Uh, he won three in a row, and then uh, Perez wins in Monaco two weeks ago. Perez and Ferrari and Carlos Sainz, they've left a ton of points out on the track. I mean, there, there's no doubt that the Ferrari is competitive this year, but I think that they, they've they got to be pretty cognizant. They've got to be pretty... like. Uh, pretty aware of the fact that they should not be second in the championship right now. We don't need to go back and revisit what happened in Monaco. That was one. We don't really need to go back and revisit what happened at Imola because that's another. Well, I mean, if you're Ferrari, that is. It's probably a little bit too painful, but you learn from your mistakes, right? And the point is, is that they've left a lot of points out on the track. And Carlos Sainz, I mean, he's had some difficulties. I mean, he had trouble keeping out of the gravel in Australia, out of the gravel in Imola, he comes back and gets uh, on the podium twice in three races. He got a third in Miami. He got a second in Monaco. So, I mean, he's he's turned, I wouldn't say he's turned his season around, uh, you know, huge. I mean, he's still only fifth in the championship, but he's been able to at least get appointed in the right uh, direction. And I think for me, 
the two main contenders in the championship at this point in the season is Ferrari, it is Red Bull, it is Carlos Sainz, it is Max Verstappen. So these are the personalities, these are the drivers I'm going to be watching. But, you know, as we talked about right at the top of the show, this whole Sergio Perez situation is fascinating as well. And this is a track that that Perez has done well at. He's he's, he's been on the podium twice. One of those was a, a race win last year. I mean, obviously there was some... You know, so I wouldn't say an asterisk about it, uh, but certainly, I mean, he was full value for money in that uh, that uh, standing start right at the very end. On was it they had two laps under green, so he he did what he needed to to do to win it. And I mean, a race win is a race win, no matter how it comes about. And I think that uh, that's one story that we're going to have to watch this weekend. Where does Perez finish in relation to Max, and does that put fuel on the fire for the you know the the the, the Inter Red Bull Championship battle, or does it throw a little bit of water on that uh, on that fire instead? So, plenty of cool things uh, to to watch. But I think that if you're Charles Leclerc, I think you got to be completely jacked up going into this race, knowing that your season isn't it's not over by a long stretch. But you know, if you have another disappointing weekend, you might start to feel that your challenge on the 2022 world championship might starting to feel like a little bit of sand running through your fingers and just trying to grab onto something solid and nothing, nothing's there to grab onto for the moment. So I think he'll be extremely keen to qualify well, which we know he's capable of because he was on pole last year. It was the front row of uh, Leclerc and Hamilton. Verstappen and Gasly rounded out uh, row two. Then you had uh, Sainz and Norris on uh, row three. Perez and uh, Yuki Sonoda row four. And then Fernando and Valtteri Bottas on uh, on row five. So we'll see how it uh, all really shapes up uh, like you. This is such an unpredictable track, such an unpredictable race. I, I, you know, those are the storylines that I, I, I believe will unfold over the course of the the, the, the weekend. But once those, uh, you know, the lights go green on Sunday afternoon, and that unpredictability that becomes unleashed in the form of Baku City Circuit, it's it, it's like Monaco on steroids, and it becomes a a a lottery. And you know, at that point, take your pick. Any one of those drivers could win come Sunday afternoon. Those first two corners on that first lap after the lights go green are just exhilarating because it's this big crush of cars going to a space that simply can't accommodate (laughs) that many, that many motor vehicles. I don't know if you noticed or if you read this out, but I just noticed in the show notes here, Max has never scored a podium in in Baku, which is absolutely crazy. Obviously, he was he was on pace to score a race win last year before, of course, he had the tire failure. But you got to think that he's eager to rectify that wrong if you so if you want to so call it. Now, I don't want to make a prediction because to me, predictions are usually based on some degree of science or some degree of math. So I think I'm probably just going to make a general guess here based on some personal preferences. But I have a feeling that maybe we're going to see somebody win this race that hasn't scored a race win yet this year. Maybe that's a, a Carlos Sainz. Um, and forgive me, uh, Mr. Reviewer, who does not like the way I pronounce Carlos Sainz, but maybe it's a Carlos Sainz victory. Maybe Mercedes has a big breakthrough this weekend and, and they managed to score a race win. I feel like Max will make up for his past performances at this track and score a podium, but I think 
simply because of the uncertainty than the chaos that is this track, maybe just maybe we could see somebody else score a race victory because so far this year, we've seen Max score a win, Leclerc score a win and Sergio score a win. So maybe we see a Lewis, a George or a Sainz victory. We'll see. We have to listen again on Sunday night to, to find out uh, for sure. And guys, that's uh, basically all we have uh, for tonight. Thank you so very much uh, for for tuning in. Thank you for downloading and listening to the show. Big shout out to to all the folks that uh, joined the live stream on YouTube. Uh, Wonderful to see you all there and to interact uh, with you guys in the chat. If you want to get in touch with us, best way to do so is on Twitter at ScooterF1Pod and uh, via email at ScooterF1Pod at gmail.com. And on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, Thank you for listening and make sure to tune in again on Sunday night. We'll recap the race with our good friend, Tim Haraney. Until then, have a great weekend. Enjoy the race. Talk to you guys again very, very soon. Bye for now.